Our scripture reading this evening, congregation, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read God's word as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's on page 1175. Page 1175. And I call your attention especially to what is said in verses 6 through 10. I'm also going to, after the reading of Scripture, invite you to turn with me in the Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the last question and answer that deals with the comfort that is ours in the prospect of our Lord's coming to judge the living and the dead. That can be found on page 221 in the Forms and Prayers booklet. First, we read the word of the Lord as we find it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on on that all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ so far, our reading of God's holy word. I invite you to turn with me now to Lord's Day 19, question and answer 52, on page 221 in the back of the Forms and Prayers book. I'll read the question, invite the congregation to respond together, saying what we believe based on God's word. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. 
your congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, did you notice in that answer based on scripture regarding the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which the Apostle Paul speaks so wonderfully in 2 Thessalonians 1, the little phrase with head uplifted. I have to tell you a little story. When I was first a student serving on summer assignment in northwest Iowa, I paid a visit to a farmer at his home at the farmstead, and one of their little children, I don't think she was more than two or three years of age, as I was talking with her parents on the uh, farm yard, uh, there was a, a light reflecting off an airplane as it flew rather high in the sky past by. And this little girl just blurted it out innocently and wonderfully, look, I think it's Jesus. Now our Lord is right, out of the mouth of babes comes forth praise. Is it really true? Are we a people who as we walk through life, as we make our way toward the heavenly city as pilgrims, that this is our posture. We wait for with eagerness the coming again of the Lord Jesus to judge the living and the dead, to put things to rights, to afflict with vengeance those who have cruelly persecuted, obstinately rejected the gospel, and trodden underfoot the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the ages, as was true, we saw this morning, of the beleaguered church to whom Christ writes so wonderfully his letter in the church to the church in Smyrna. Uh, I have an idea that the old saying, some people are so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly good, that that's not really our trouble. That's not really our temptation. We tend to be, I judge, so earthly minded as to be of little heavenly good because it makes a great deal of difference how you make your way through life and whether your posture ever takes the form of waiting eagerly with uplifted head. You know, the Paul, Apostle Paul says to the church in Colossae, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, for your life is hid with Christ in God. I also quoted this morning in my sermon that wonderful definition whose faith is what? It's the substance of the things that we hope for. It's the evidence of things not seen, or to put it in terms of our passage this evening in our confession, the coming again of Christ at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead is more substantive than this sacred desk you call a pulpit or the remodeling of the foyer of this church. It's something that is not only real, actual, not to use that terrible phrase, pie in the sky, 
in the by and by, but it's the ultimate end point of all of our hope as Christians. But the day comes when Christ, who came a first time in weakness, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, will come again in glory and in power to grant relief, as Paul puts it, to his troubled and beleaguered church. Now, I'm calling this the comfort, the gospel, the good news of Christ's coming to judge the living and the dead. And there are three aspects of that comfort of which the Apostle Paul speaks most beautifully here in 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, first of all, it means for God's afflicted people, not until he comes, but when he comes, the cessation of all such affliction and trouble, the granting of relief, or you could render the Greek, the language there, rest, peaceableness, to a church that has known a great deal of suffering and persecution. That's the first thing. The second thing is, the comfort of Christ coming again to judge the living of the dead is not only that it promises a perfect peace, but as we notice in verse 10, it will mean Christ glorified in his saints. The glorification of Christ in his people at his coming. And then the last thing is they will marvel at him, all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. The holy admiration, the wonderment of God's people when they see the Christ in whom they've believed. Faith looks upon the things that are unseen not the things that are seen. But when Christ is revealed, his people, says Paul to the church in Thessalonica, will with one voice marvel. I begin with the first thing, perfect peace and rest. It's not difficult as you read the first chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica to get a sense of what was the circumstance of that church. They had only known from the very beginning of Paul's mission and preaching of the gospel to them, as it's recorded in the book of Acts, they had only known trouble. They were a church in Thessalonica, much like the church that we saw this morning that was in Smyrna. Notice how he puts it in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you. Now isn't that an interesting posture for a preacher? a minister. I'm delighted. I can't stop telling people about you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Not like some pre preachers, pastors who might spend too much of their time bemoaning the state of affairs in the church that they think they've served so faithfully with so little apparent fruit or response to their ministry. Not so with the church in Thessalonica. Paul says, I, I boast about you whenever possible among all the churches. I tell them the story of how even though from the very beginning this was a church born out of the dust and fury of opposition from the synagogue, of people breathing out violence and 
assaulting them and dispossessing them and persecuting them. We boast about you because in the churches of God, your steadfastness and faith was remarkable in all your persecutions, in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, maybe sometimes it so happens that we're not quite as eager for Christ's coming because that's not our circumstance. God has been so good to us as to prosper us on our way, to give us, in many respects, exceptional blessings in a land still like the one in which we find ourselves. And it's difficult for you to resonate with what the Apostle Paul is saying to this church. But notice something interesting. He doesn't promise them that there will be an end to their troubles or a cessation of the persecutions meted out against them prior to Christ's coming. Paul was apparently not of the persuasion that the kingdom of Christ would so come and be so powerful and prevalent in the world and among all the nations that the whole world will come to enjoy a long season of blessedness and prosperity. Now he holds out to them the prospect. Rather, our citizenship, remember he says to the church in Philippi, is in heaven, whence we await a Savior from there, who when he comes from heaven will grant to us who dwell in these bodies of our humiliation a glorified body like unto his resurrection glorified body. And he speaks similarly to the church in Thessalonica. He says, this is evidence, your present trials and persecutions of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. It actually reminds me of a passage in the book of Acts chapter 4 where early on when the church in Jerusalem was being driven about and persecuted by many, uh, they concluded at their prayer meeting that so it is, only through much tribulation do we enter the kingdom. And so it was with the church as well in Thessalonica. Since indeed, he goes on, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief, rest to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, who will gather the elect from the four corners of God's creation with his elect angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, I don't know whether you've heard much about that recently. I trust you have in this church from this pulpit, but you don't hear much about that from many pulpits, simultaneous with that relief, rest, cessation of all their afflictions that will be granted to God's people when Christ is revealed from heaven. 
Christ will come to judge. And for his, as our confession puts it, and his people's enemies, it will be a day of vengeance. Now that's something very significant to ponder. There's an evangelical theologian, a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's not altogether reliable in all respects. But he makes an interesting observation about that justice will be done by Christ and for his beleaguered church when he comes is a great consolation. Now, mind you, he says, if you live in a comfortable home in the suburbs and you've never known any trouble, you've never experienced what my people, the Croatian people, have experienced, invaders who come into their land to kill and maim, to rape women and kill men, women, and children recklessly and mock God and his coming kingdom, then though vengeance is God's, not ours, to exact, you do pray when you pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, that his people would be vindicated. He also makes an interesting observation. That's also why Christians, in the meanwhile, unto the day of Christ's coming, show mercy and compassion and call all to faith and repentance, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They don't seek here and now vengeance, not ultimate vengeance, nor do they anticipate that Ultimate justice will be done. The last century is littered. The landscape of the last century with kingdoms and world powers that thought they could bring in the kingdom and mete out justice. And in the name of their kingdom, which is no kingdom, more than 100 million people likely died because of their utopian dreams and their arrogance and abuse of their power. But the good news for Christ's church is justice will be done. Those who have persecuted ruthlessly and persistently Christ's people and his church, who have not kissed the Son, as the psalmist said, and acknowledged him as Lord, and have done cruel and vicious things, to God's innocent ones, upon them God will inflict his just wrath as he casts them away unto eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might and grants to his people perfect rest. In the Old Testament, what was it God promised his people? Rest in God's presence in a land inheritance that would flow with milk and honey. What is it our Lord promises us? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. All of the troubles you have seen and the church and God's people have experienced 
throughout the centuries will issue in their entrance into that peace that will mark life in that new and better country, that new order of things of which the vision of Revelation 21 speaks, where the curse has been utterly removed. Striking how the Catechism says that for the Christian who with uplifted head anticipates the day of Christ's coming, his revelation from heaven, and all that that entails, it doesn't produce in them a fearful prospect of judgment because the one who comes to judge has already suffered and taken and endured the judgment that was due us in our sin in our place. He comes as the friend of sinners and of all those who have acknowledged him and responded to the gospel invitation that were extended to them by the working of the Spirit through the Word. So the day will come. The hour will and has been appointed when Christ's beleaguered, persecuted, troubled, afflicted people will be vindicated together with Christ Himself when in all of His glory He is revealed at his coming at the end of the age. That's the first thing. But now notice this language. I'm going to focus primarily on the comfort, spoken about the vengeance that will be exacted upon those who have refused him, but the comfort. Verse 10, when he comes on that day, the day of his revelation, the day of his coming to judge the living and the dead, to be glorified in his saints. Now, when I'm preaching, I like to say to the children, this is why you need to pay attention to the grammar in your classroom. Prepositions matter. And in this particular case, the preposition is this, to be glorified not by his saints. He will certainly be glorified and praised, extolled, and worshipped. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord, yes. But in this instance, the language is, he will be glorified in his saints. What does that mean? His work in them having been brought to completion. The bride of Christ become a perfect bride, without spot or blemish. You can read about her in the passage I mentioned a moment ago in Revelation 21. Christ's bride, the heavenly bridegroom, the new Jerusalem, scrubbed clean of anything sinful. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be found there. A place of perfect light, perfect light and peace of unending righteousness, where everything is exactly as God has purposed to bring it. I don't know about you husbands, but you remember your bride on your wedding day? I hope she's just as beautiful today as she was then. 
She is, right? But when she is perfected, the heavenly bridegroom receives her. All of his toil work now finished. Perfectly, we'll see him as he is, so let's purify ourselves so that we can be in his presence, and he will do it. We will be fit and appropriately a bride with whom the bridegroom is endlessly delighted. Can't think of a critical thing to say about her. She's splendid. She dazzles. She's wondrous. After all, as I suggested a little bit ago when I quoted from Paul's language in Philippians, when Christ comes from heaven, he comes to bring us into an existence where this earthly body of a tent, as he puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, that's tattered around the edges. And as I said to my students recently in class, you get to be my age, you don't even want to look in the mirror. This body of your humiliation is exactly that. But when we will be outwardly clothed upon, even as we are now being inwardly renewed day by day, and we dwell in not an earthly tent, tattered around the edges, a body of our humiliation, but in the resurrection body, fully conformed in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, as delightful to God the Father as is his own dear Son, whose image is born and reflected in us. Now, you parents know I happened to be yesterday as a grandparent at something called ISMA, where students who are learning to play their instruments, percussion, and as well air, uh, percussion air, but as well uh, the violin stringed instruments. One of my grandsons, one of my granddaughters were participating. And you will not be surprised if I say as a grandfather, they did splendidly. I said to my wife, I used to play the clarinet, but couldn't play it, hold a candle to the way my granddaughter plays the clarinet. You see, we take pride in and delight in, and that's a good thing. Never mind myself. In the accomplishments by God's grace of those whom we love. And the interesting thing is God's glory is inextricably joined to your and my good. Christ is never more glorified when he sees himself in us. And we bear his image in perfection. And you know very well that no preacher is able to tell you what eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it come into the heart of man, what that will be like. But at the revelation, the second coming, the coming to judge the living and the dead, not only will we be granted peace, lasting, permanent, unbroken and unbreakable peace in joyful fellowship with God and with all those who are God's. 
Christ will be glorified in his saints, even as they glorify him. But then there's one last thing. He puts it rather remarkably, the apostle. He says, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now let me ask you a question. I alluded to that awful saying, pie in the sky in the by and by. But the question is this. Have you ever had your doubts? Be honest. Really? That's all you have to hold out as the end point of history? That the day will come when Christ is revealed? Hasn't happened in almost 2,000, well, 2,000 plus years. You can almost hear that unbelieving neighbor of yours scoffing. What has become of his coming? And you wonder, is it really true? Is it the substance? I didn't really agree with you, Dr. Venema, that this of which we speak is more real than this pulpit. Earthly things will vanish. Only the things that are heavenly and from heaven endure forever. Of that you can be sure. So, notice what Paul says about his coming. It will be a revelation. Christ will be unveiled. Every eye will see him. Not only the eye of those who crucified him, who will flee from his presence, but the eye of those whom, as the Apostle Peter somewhere says, believed in him, even though they never saw him, in the way in which we will see him when he comes. Now, you don't think that God's people who have believed this message when he comes and is revealed will not be wide-eyed and marvel with grateful wonder, more than any child delighting in those stores that don't exist anymore, Toys R Us, the cornucopia of everything they ever wanted but didn't need. I, a number of years ago, read a book. I, when I'm on vacation, I read novels. No books of theology on vacation. And I read a very interesting biography that someone had given me, written by Edgar Whitcomb. I don't know if anyone here is old enough to remember. Edgar Whitcomb was once the governor of the state of Indiana. And he wrote a book entitled Escape from Corregidor. And late in the book, there's a chapter entitled, Hello, Mom. And here's the story he tells. He was captured in the Pacific. He was a member of the death march to Bataan. He managed to escape not once, but twice. He was even suspected by the War Department of these United States of having colluded with the enemy. And through a very torturous set of circumstances, for two years, his parents back on the farm, much like this part of the state of Indiana, had been only informed that he was missing in action. Whether he was dead or alive, they did not know. 
They didn't have cell phones in those days. They didn't have all these kind of easy means of communication. And so after two years of his being missing in action, he's given permission to call his parents on the telephone. And his mother answers the phone. Hello, Mom. He says, it's Edgar. I'm alive. I'm coming home. I'll be there in two days on the train. Now, you know what his parents did? <laughs> they didn't wait two days. They went to the train station. They weren't going to miss it for anything. With head uplifted, brothers and sisters, you wouldn't want to be taken unawares without any sense of eagerness, anticipation. You do pray, come Lord Jesus, yes, come quickly. And don't you think that his mother and father marveled when he stepped off the train? Some of you may have had an experience like that with a son or daughter in the armed forces. Finally, they come home safe and sound. Not always. That was a happy day in your family. And for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the happiest day of all is when our beloved Savior, who sits at the Father's right hand, who pours out His Spirit upon the church as a down payment, comes for us to grant us peace, to be glorified in us. And all God's people, says Paul, will marvel. They'll stand amazed. They'll rejoice. How does it put in our confession? It says, will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy, joy unspeakable, joy unending, and the glory of heaven. May God grant to you, brothers and sisters, that you would be the kind of person of whom you speak when you take upon your lips the language of question and answer 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What a comfort that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge that our faith is often weak. We do not always have the posture of those whose heads are uplifted who are waiting with great eagerness the day of our Lord's revelation. Forgive us for this, but also kindle in us as we make our way through life a perpetual hope that never dies, that the risen, ascended, reigning Christ will come to judge the living and the dead and all of the wonderful blessings that that means for him and for us will be realize. May that give us great encouragement, whatever our circumstance in this life. We pray in Jesus' name.